stay hungry, stay foolish. Before we launch into today's episode, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Zai. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded finance products, empowering businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. How do you cope when faced with complexity and constant change at work? Here's what the world's best leaders and teams do. They improvise. They invent novel responses and take calculated risks without a scripted plan or a safety net that guarantees specific outcomes. They negotiate with each other as they proceed and they don't dwell on mistakes or stifle each other's ideas. In short, they say yes to the mess. That is today's hurried, harried, yet enormously innovative and fertile world of work. Today's guest describes how, like skilled jazz players, leaders need to master the art of unlearning, perform and experiment simultaneously, and take turns soloing and supporting each other. And with examples from a wide range of industries from manufacturing to military to high tech, he illustrates how organizations must take an inventive approach to crisis management, economic volatility, and all the rapidly evolving realities of our globally connected world. It is a great pleasure to welcome the author of Yes to the Mess, Surprising Leadership Lessons from Jazz, Frank Barrett. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Aiden. Nice to meet you. It's fantastic to have you on the show, Frank. And I've learned that you are an Irishman. We're claiming you as one of ours, ours now. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so My Frank Barrett would be so happy. Yeah, Frank Barrett from, from Mayo. Everybody knows Frank Barrett from Mayo. <laughs> Maybe we'll say a shout out to your your family over that side of the world. Yeah, I, I don't know how many of them are still there. Uh, I met a few when I visited a few years ago, but my grandparents are from Mayo. Uh, two of them are from Ackle. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, hello to the Barretts over in the west of Ireland as well. And good, great news for audience as well. I have a copy here behind me. I also have a copy up for grabs. Just sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter and you will be in a minute chance to win this magnificent book for people in leadership positions, for personal growth, but also for innovation. It is a beautiful read. And Frank, I wanted to mention as well, I said it to you off air before we started, and I've said it on the show before. People often ask, you know, Aiden, you don't really ask direct questions in the show, but that's because I've adopted Frank Barrett's solo and support technique. It's what I do with the show where I tee up the guest with a little excerpt from the book and let them improvise and bring it whichever way they want. So I want to thank you as well for giving me that language to solo and support. So let's get into it, Frank. Sure. So I thought we'd start with the origins of the book itself, which unveils the leadership mindset and the kinds of activities and skills that help leaders understand and facilitate the innovation process. And my solo here is in the late 1980s, when you were a graduate student in organizational behavior at a conference where your dis dissertation advisor introduced you to Carl Weick as the doctoral student who used to play jazz 
And indeed, you have traveled the world with the Tommy Dorsey band. I have a few of those albums. You led your own trios and quartets. And I have to say, you have got that magnificent jazz voice as well. I'd love you to share your origin story of this book. Yeah, thank you. You started it out there. Um, Carl Weick is a giant in the field of organizational studies. If there was a Pulitzer Prize in the field, it would pro in my field, it would probably be called the Weick Prize. He's just um, a, a real frame breaker. You know, everything he writes is just magnificent. And it was at a conference, and my dissertation advisor, Sarastri Vasva, introduced me to Carl Weick. And of course, it'd be, I was nervous because um, I'd read his work in a state of awe. And um, he, when Suresh said to him, you know, Frank is the guy who uh, is the jazz musician I was telling you about. Turns out Carl is a huge fan of jazz. And uh, he said to me, are you writing your dissertation on jazz? And, and I thought maybe he misunderstood. Does he think I'm a music student? Or, but I, I was puzzled and said, no, I'm actually writing my dissertation on a teams um, that are going through a, a major transformation uh, over at the Cleveland Clinic where I was doing my dissertation. And um, his uh, his question sort of resonated with me because I realized I'm studying teams for my dissertation and on weekends I'm playing in a jazz band, you know, with four other guys, three or four other guys. And um and it dawned, I kept, it, it just sort of puzzled. Why would he think I'd be, I'd want to study jazz? Uh, I'm, I'm studying groups and teams through time, but and then all of a sudden it occurred to me, well, gosh, jazz bands are teams. They're also groups. And what's the nature of a jazz band? Um, if, if we were to look closely at what jazz bands do, it might really give us some insights into what a good learning organization looks like. And I just started these little, explosions were going off in my head. A, a few years later, um, with uh, Mary Jo Hatch, one of my friends and colleagues, her husband at the time was a jazz drummer, and I was talking to her about this. And um, she said, well, why don't we do a symposium at the Academy of Management? And so in, I think it was 1995 or, or so, yeah, it was 1995, it was in Vancouver, we held a symposium and we brought a, uh, a jazz band in and played and we presented papers and all of a sudden this just started to take off in my mind. And that's where the idea for the book came. I started to notice these principles that I put forth in the book, that this is what good jazz bands look like. The symposium at Vancouver was oversold. People were standing in the hallways. So it really, it went over really big. It was a, it was a, um, a wonderful experience for me. I loved uh, the origin story as well, like younger Frank, because you mentioned how your piano teacher at the time when you were a kid told your mother, not, don't be wasting your money on lessons for that kid. But yeah. then your grandfather was a vastly different character altogether. And he, he embedded some of the principles that have come through in this book and that we see in innovation all over. The, all over. I'd love you to share this because this was when a seed was planted. And later on, like we do in life, you recognize how valuable that was. Yeah, little did I know. I mean, my, my grandfather was a ragtime piano player and um, he had 52 grandchildren, now, some outrageous number like that. But for some reason, I was his favorite. And um, 
And I used to just listen, love listening to him play piano. And I'd sit under the piano and listen to him. And then he would show me how to play certain chords and how to accompany him when we play four-handed piano. And so my mom gave, did what a good mother would do and gave me piano lessons. And I just hated it. It was, it was just awful, you know, learning to play scales and finger exercises and, and trying to read music. And it just, um, it didn't click. And he basically said, you, you know, you're wasting your money. Uh, this kid's not going to be a piano player. Um, and what it really, in retrospect, what it was is I had a different mode of learning. I was excited by the whole embodiment of being with my grandfather, of playing with him, joining him, you know, imitating him. Uh, and it was a, you know, a ongoing experimentation, you know, full embodiment. Um, and the other lessons, the formal lessons, were all these sort of heady, cognitive, very deliberate strategies you need to learn first in order to play, you know, learning by rules just didn't, didn't register. It didn't even dawn on me that it was the same instrument. I know it's a strange, strange story. And I'm, I often have to say, in, I often, um, in retrospect, wish I had been a better student and more deliberate and took, you know, take classical lessons and learn how to play classical piano. Later in my life, in my thirties, I, I did start to study Bach and I played some Bach, um, fugues and preludes uh just because they were they became i realized they were beautiful and bach himself was improvising so i learned more and more um i admired more and more classical piano i'm not a good classical piano pianist and i'm not a great sight reader because i what i didn't i didn't learn in that mode when i was younger but i'm happy with the way i learned yeah and i i think it's such a valuable lesson and it leads us up nicely to the first of the seven principles. And for audience, the book is broken into seven principles. And Frank alternates beautifully between jazz, the lessons from jazz, and then organizational lessons, innovation lessons, organizations, how they innovate, etc. And the very first one is almost provoked by what you said there, because oftentimes you see this and, and I've seen it in sport, Frank, for example, or you see it with management, people go to school, you know, do an MBA, they learn a way of business should be done this way. And then the world of work is in turbulence, and they can't deal with it. They're like, but but the rule book says this, and they can't get off script. And as you say, they can't master the art of unlearning. And this is absolutely core to both jazz and to innovation. Yeah, it's a it's, it's a counterintuitive thing to say to master the art of unlearning. But what it means is that we learn, we tend to learn rules, principles, habits um, that serve us in certain conditions, but we tend to overlearn those. And, and they can get in the way of paying attention to what's happening in the moment, in, the, in, in real time, that we became more loyal to what we call, I call it a success trap or a competency trap, that it worked before and we'll do it again. Uh, but in the current moment, something else is called for. Um, when we, we live by habit, we close ourselves off to other things. I mean, habits are important. We need habits. We need um, to be able to rely on tried and true ways of doing things while having to rethink and redecide every time. But they tend to be overlearned and they get in the way of noticing, um, glimpsing innovative possibilities. So that's what I think jazz players do is they, they learn uh, licks and phrases, and we we 
we memorize solos um, and we have certain things we rely upon. But in the moment, um, it's important to let go of that so you can in, in, you know, create something novel. I love when you talk about uh, Drucker and you talk about your experiences with Carl Weick as well. And like us on the show here, many of our audience are fans of Peter Drucker. You say here that despite the fact that your admiration for Drucker is almost boundless, you believe his conductor metaphor fails to account for the enormous ambiguity and turbulence that we're experiencing today. And you're drawn instead to the analysis or the model introduced by Wyke in his influence influential paper improvisation as a mindset for organizational analysis, because Drucker said, as you said, that he likened the leader of an organization to a conductor, and that they just called for the notes when they should be played, etc. But we don't live in that world anymore. And, and that's a real struggle also for leaders of organizations, because they've been taught that way, back to what we talked about earlier on, they've been taught to t play the scales for a rote world. But that certainly doesn't exist anymore. Exactly. I, I think the meaning that Peter Drucker was going for is still relevant. I think we was trying to say the reason conductor is a good metaphor, he was saying, is that um, the leader needs to sort of orchestrate all kinds of knowledge specialists. There's these diverse knowledge specialists out there, you know, cellists who are great, trombone players who are great, and they're separate. Um, they live in their own little compartments, and a, and a good leader brings them together in a fruit and when it's fruitful, that part of the metaphor is great, but it has an unintended consequence. It still gives you the sense that um, the, the leader is orchestrating something that's already been prescripted. And that's why I think the, the jazz metaphor is more fruitful. And I'm going to build on that because I loved one of the ideas you introduced called the improv paradox. And you say here, an over-reliance on learned patterns tends to limit the risk-taking necessary for creative growth, just as too much regulation and control restrict the interplay of ideas. In order for musicians and leaders in organizations to strike a groove, they must suspend some degree of control and surrender to the flow. I love that concept because we've talked about Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi's idea of flow before, but in music and in jazz, you call that in the groove. Yeah, yeah, hitting the groove is um, is very similar to what Csikszentmihalyi meant by flow, um, except that it's social. It's not it's not just the individual experience. It's when the band is in the groove, when everybody's feeling the beat at the same time in the same way, and the music's sort of taking off in ways that are surprising you in real time. Like, um, and the interaction is is really tight, um, and people are sort of reading each other, or feeling each other's movements, where things are headed, um, having delightful surprises. That's what being in the groove is, means. Um, and it, what gets in the way is often relying on, on comfort, relying on what worked in the past, learned patterns, as you mentioned. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, for leaders, leaders want success and they want to guarantee something, a good outcome. That's understandable. But that instinct could also lead them to um, rely too much on control and regulation and control, uh, you know, fear of it not working well. And the improv paradox means sort of letting go of that fear, let, letting go and paying attention to what might emerge. 
Later on, Frank, I loved your comparison between Sonny Rollins and Intel's Andy Grove, the former CEO of Intel, may he rest in peace. And I'll tee you up here a quote with a quote from Rollins that nails what you're going to build on here. You said, as soon as I hear myself playing a familiar melody, I take the mouthpiece out of my mouth. I let some measures go by. Improvising means coming in with a completely clean slate from the first note. The most important thing is to get away from fixed functions. I thought that was so valuable about stepping away and then stepping back into it and beginning again. That's, that's right. And that's what Andy Grove did um, back, gosh, in the 80s when uh, Intel needed to change direction. Um, they knew that they were not set up for success. And he said to his uh, right-hand person, you know, if, if we were, let's go outside the door and walk back in again and, re you know, what kind of organization will we reinvent? So he begs to say, let's let go of everything that got us into this position. And we're, we're in an enviable, enviable position, but if we keep operating like this, things aren't going to work well. And, and what Sonny Rollins did, um, he was very well known uh, in the 1960s, in the early 1960s. Um, and um, he got tired of hearing himself play. He realized he was, he was playing familiar patterns over and over again. And so he quit. And there were rumors, like, did he have a drug problem? Was he sick? No one knew because he was, he was well-known and he was missed. And for several years, um, he went underneath the Williamsburg Bridge in New York and played his saxophone. And every time he heard himself play something familiar, he'd stop. And then he'd start over again. And he'd just play. And if he sound, sounded familiar, he'd stop and um start over so that he was praying he was playing novelty on purpose over and over again he was literally remaking himself and he came out with a new album um that at the time was not understood well by critics it was kind of panned by critics and it's now on just about everyone's list of the top 10 albums ever recorded and it's called the bridge named after his uh his sort of remaking himself under the Williamsburg Bridge. There's, there's a movement now to rename the Williamsburg Bridge the Sonny Rollins Bridge. That's so good, man. Isn't it so amazing that when you see people take those leaps of faith and tr and lean into who they really are, they inevitably work out, and at least they end up with no regrets as well. And I just love that story about Sonny Rollins as well. But I'll keep moving, Frank, because we, we have six to go and we're running out of time. Frank's under time pressure today. But I'll move on to principle two. So this is all about the art of improvisation and the whole idea there about Sonny Rollins trying things, listening to himself and the echo under the bridge, etc. And you say here, improvisation grows out of a receptivity to what the situation offers. And thus, the first move is a yes to the mess, a state of radical receptivity that all jazz musicians yearn toward. This is the second principle, Yes to the Mess, the title of the book, Defe Developing Affirmative Competence. And I'd love you to share this one. Yeah, it's, um, it's the mother load that makes jazz work. Um, problem solving doesn't help. You can't say, geez, I didn't like what you played. Can we go back there and do that over again? Problem solving is the opposite of affirmation. And problem solving is important. We need to be good problem solvers, but that's not where the art of innovation lies. What makes jazz work is that you, you said that this is receptivity to whatever 
emerges with the bias toward the yes, that this can lead somewhere positive and to stay in that framework. Um, I, I often said that a jazz band is a community where people are perpetually saying yes to each other. It's a perpetual yes to whatever offer you're giving us. We'll see where it leads. Um, and, and with a sense that where, whatever is going to happen in the future is going to be positive. It's a real affirmative mindset. Um, that's I call affirmative competence, a hope it's, it's a hopeful image of what's possible, um, with a bias towards yes. And that links so beautifully back to your granddad. So that's what he did for you. He was he was leaning into that potential. What's what's Frank's potential here? I'll lean into it. I won't lean too much on his faux pas or his mistakes. I'll go again and I'll encourage him. I, I love that how it links back to that all the time, Frank. I'm really glad you made that connection. My grand with my grandfather, everything I did was perfect. I mean, I was, I'm sure I was making mistakes all over the place, but he never once made, communicated to me that what you're doing is wrong and you need to get it better, As, which is what was happening in my, my uh, you know, formal lessons is my teacher was correcting mistakes constantly. My grandfather never did that. It's like every gesture I made was beautiful. And, I, you know, little did I know how, how much how rich that was as a learning environment for me. It's so powerful, Frank, I, you know, because I, I was I was reading your book, while my son, he's eight, he's, he's really leaning into sports more and more. And he hadn't really shown much of an interest in sport. But he asked me to go out and throw the ball around with him kick around. And I do I, I've been doing that I'm just emphasizing when he's doing things right. And when he when he when he doesn't, it's not that he's making a mistake. It's like he hasn't been shown how to do it yet. But this was why I'm sharing this. It manifested then we went to these fun escape rooms, you know, that activity for and it was a kid's version. And because I was leaning on all the things he was doing positively, he thought differently about escape rooms. So there was me, my wife, my other son and him and he's the youngest. And we were all looking at this trying to figure out the puzzle. And he thought about something that none of us thought about. And it saved us so much time on the room, like he hacked it, essentially. And afterwards, I made that connection with him I was like, you know, that's because you're looking for new solutions. And it's like when we train together, you'll find something that I don't know yet. And that's always be positive about that son. And it, I want to thank you for that, because you helped me make that connection as well, right back to your granddad. So let's thank uh, your dear granddad there as well. Yeah, thank you. I mean, my, my grandfather was delighted in my discoveries kind of like what you are saying about with your son, just the presence of someone who's delighted with your discoveries rather than trying to fix your mistakes. And if you think about it, that's the way we learn language. You know, when we first are first learning to talk, our parents are just thrilled when the first time you say the word bottle. And, you know, there's lots of faux pas along the way. But if they treated, if you treated little kids like an engineer doing problem solving, we would all turn into dribbling idiots. You know, if you say, no, it's not bottle, it's bottle, bottle. How many times do I have to tell you it's bottle? You know, that would that would create a tension. It turns turns you into a non-learner. So having someone who celebrates discovery is is a life-changing experience. I, I think that's that lesson. If there's nothing anybody else takes from the book, it's that. It's the idea that we live in a world today that is like childhood again, we're all discovering that world. So we need that mentality from leaders in organizations and everybody. So they're not 
being frozen by the fear of making mistakes, which is a huge part of this book as well. But before we move on to the third principle, Frank, I love the story that you share of the positive deviance, because I think our audience <laughs> are all positive deviants out there. But this was the story in the village in Vietnam from the work of David Sternen. And you share this to highlight a focus on positive outcomes, exactly what we were talking about here. I'll let you take it away. Sure. It's a, it's a fairly long story. I'll try and keep it more simple. Um, he was working with one of the World Health Organizations, I believe from the United Nations, going into this village in Vietnam where there was a, um, a lot of children dying of malnutrition or suffering from some form of malnutrition. And the methods that they had been using um, to help the villagers get good nutrition were, were kind of like what my piano teacher was doing. Like, here's the right way to do it. Here's what you need. Uh, here's the food. They were giving them food. And they noticed that it wasn't making much of an impact. And uh, one day out of frustration, um, David said, is there any, but any family here whose kids are not suffering from malnutrition? And the women in the village said, yeah, down, down the road there and pointed to this one woman whose kids were, seemed to be doing really well. And he said, let's go see what they're doing. And that's what made it a positive deviance. He said, instead of looking at, instead of addressing all the ways we're failing in malnutrition and what needs to be fixed. Let's go look at someone who's doing something innovative and study them. And they, all the whole village went down and sat around this woman and just asked her questions. What are you doing? How do you feed your children? And they had all kinds of new insights, like how she used, um, how, how she used, was able to find, you know, small, shrimps from uh, the river. Most of the women avoided it because it was not healthy. Well, she had learned to boil the water. Uh, she had learned uh, one important lesson is around rice because rice fills you up quickly. It gives you a false sense of being full. Most of the mothers were feeding their children um, a full meal of rice, but it wasn't, it wasn't enough and they would stop eating. But this woman would give them a little bit of rice throughout the day so that it, it was more nourishing. And no one had known about that. It's like um, what David Sternum was teaching us is change your questions and it changes everything. Change what you're asking about, change what you focus on, and it, it changes everything. That's what another version of affirmative competence. I love that because, again, as you know, in innovation work, we tend to look, try and change the whole organization at once or change management. And instead, you look for those pockets of excellence and get repeat them. So I, that's the real lesson I took from that brilliant story. So the third principle, Frank, is a beautiful one. And this discusses the importance of creating a culture of learning so much the holy grail for so many organizations who listen to the show. And you say here leaders need to do what jazz musicians do. They anticipate when people are encouraged to try something new, the results will be unexpected and unexpectable, including errors that we talked about earlier on. And you say innovative cultures maximize learning by nurturing a mindset of enlightened trial and error. I love that term. And that allows managers to take advantage of errors to offer new insights. And this is a principle you call performing and experimenting simultaneously embracing errors as a source of learning. I absolutely love that. And in there, you shared the great story of Alan Mulally when he took over as CEO of Ford. 
Yeah, it's a it, this notion of um, we usually think we do all our experimentation first. You know, I, I teach for the U.S. Navy, so this is the way the Navy operates. And it makes sense in some conditions. I mean, if you're running an aircraft carrier, you can't be experimenting with how different ways to land planes. There are certain things that are reliable. You need to learn reliable rules. But we, again, that's an overlearned muscle in most organizational situations. We think we have to get all our experimentation out of the way so then we can perform brilliantly. But with a question I'm asking, is it possible to be experimenting and performing simultaneously? And that's what I think jazz bands are doing. They're, they're experimenting in real time and turning it into a performance. And it means, in particular, pay, atten pay attention to how you treat errors. Um, it, do you punish failure more than reward success? If so, you know, you, it's a formula for eventual disaster to treat errors as a source of learning. And what Malali did at Ford when you came in, and of course he was a new CEO and everybody wants to impress the CEO and his, you know, his vice presidents and directors, we had them each go around and present their ideas uh, and, and had reports, you know, a version of annual reports. And he stopped it in the middle and said, is it possible everybody is so damn perfect? Is this even possible? I can't believe there hasn't been some mistakes made. And he challenged them to talk openly about mistakes they've made or things that they found temporarily embarrassing or things they had to adjust to that were unanticipated. And it changed the entire conversation. He made it legitimate to talk openly about um, disappointments uh, and uh, ways that people had made mistakes that they had to adjust to. Um, you know, that's an important intervention. Huge intervention. And there's a killer line here I'd love to share. You said, failure, after all, is an inevitable part of risk and experimentation. And that is such a take home for many of us. And you raise next a beautiful term, what critic Ted Joya calls an aesthetic of imperfection. And here you say, rather than grade the success or failure of individual creations based on some external standard of perfection, such as one might find with classical music, for example, Joya argues that with jazz, there is a need to evaluate courageous efforts, such an aesthetic would involve evaluating the entire repertoire of actions that the musicians attempted, the beautiful phrases combined with the clunkers that were the result of risky efforts, the same expansive efforts that no doubt produced beautiful passages. I absolutely love that as a concept for business. Thank you. Um, uh, Ted Joya uh, has a blog. I can't remember the name of it. He just won two big awards for it, by the way. He's a wonderful jazz critic. And um, it, 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 as, you, as you were saying this, I had a sense of sadness. And my sadness is what's happened to the recording industry nowadays. Um, what When people are making records or recordings, a lot of the effort is in production, the post-production, to edit out all the errors to get the recording to be perfect, as opposed to the live jazz recordings from, you know, back in the 40s and 50s, where every effort was recorded and you get it just the way it was. And there's something beautiful about the raw experience of watching people trying to extend their reach 
and uh, in real time and watching them make it work it through. John Coltrane was a perfect example of this. He would try out a phrase and you could almost see him thinking in real time, "Um, I'm not sure I like that. Let me try it again. And he repeats it. And you can almost hear him thinking out loud, well, there's parts of this I like. Let me grab this part and see where it leads. If if a production engineer had was in charge of John Coltrane's um, recordings, I'm not sure we would get the same musician. Uh, and and that, that saddens me about the state of music. Um, but it come, to come back to, um, to organizational life, I think it's, it's important, like when we do performance appraisals, couldn't we include an item that say something at time you made a courageous effort or made an expansive effort with no guarantee that your effort was going to be a, a success. And just based on that, um, you know, I think we would go a long way to creating a learning culture in our organizations. And again, let's not be naive. There's times where, um, replication of success is absolutely essential. If an aircraft carrier, if 12 planes take off, you can't have an attitude that says, let's see, uh, let's try different ways of doing this. And if an, if 90% of the planes return, it's a good day. That That's not a good day. There's non-negotiable. So we're not talking about that. And, we, and we're not talking about failures that are a result of, of bad effort or laziness or failed effort. Those things need to be attended to with an appropriate mindset. I'm talking about efforts that are stretches, that stretch to try to go beyond a comfortable limit. Those kinds of efforts need to be rewarded. There, there's a, I don't know, have you heard, Frank, of the Crazy Penguin Award? Have you heard about this? I think it's Google who offer this. No. So you'll love this, man. This it talks to what you were talking about there. So the whole idea is if you think about when you see these images of penguins on the side of a, an iceberg and they're kind of all hesitating to jump off and then one of them will go for it. And if you put yourself into the mind of that penguin, it's like there could be sharks down there, there could be rocks, I could get impaled on a, a spike of an iceberg and one penguin goes for it. So Google called this for courageous efforts, the crazy penguin award, which will which will go beautifully with your with your concept. Great correlation. I'll build on this because you gave a great example here. And many of our audience won't have heard this. I certainly hadn't heard this one before. I absolutely loved it. This is the inventors of the HP printer, the Hewlett Packard printer, and how they sounded like a jazz musician, both in their relentless tinkering and tolerance for mistakes, and how in their fundamental restlessness with the status quo, they achieved something great here. And I wanted to highlight that story because it demonstrates that breakthrough innovations do not have to come from outsiders, they can come also from within an organization. Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, the HP really reinvented the printer, um, but they did it by making a bunch of mistakes along the way. And uh, engineers were tinkering with things and sharing um, experiments with each other. Basically, they were experimenting out loud. And it was legitimate to talk about what you're trying and what's not working. And because they kept um, kept that mindset going, they're able to get some breakthroughs. You were saying there earlier on about the, the, the listening to music where, let's call it earbrushed, it's not earbrushed out the mistakes and the beauty that that can, that can have like, I, and I think about people like Billy Halliday and the, the 
the pain in the voice and and it's that it's that you know almost torturing the the note that actually makes it so beautiful and this brings me to this idea of and you talk about athletes as well where they're touching the edge of chaos as well and this actually brings us beautifully into the next principle which is also this concept of chaotic we've we've had the great honor on this show frank of having a seven part series with the man who coined that phrase d hawk who's the founder of visa yeah 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 amazing episode and that's at the heart of most of what he talks but this is about minimal structure maximal autonomy and chaotic and this idea of complexity is at the heart of jazz musicians as well and should be at the heart of the organization in this world that is in a bit of chaos. I think that this is one principle that if we could get this right in organizations it would have enormous payoffs. Um because totally what what's happening often is we structure the hell out of things because we want guarantees of outcomes and it usually comes from a place of fear. So we have report outs that are due. Um I just happens in the navy all the time. I mean I did some work with the um submarine warfare uh community and oh my god and, it, and it's important that you know they have a nuclear power plant on the boat. They need to have lots and lots of guarantees that, and report outs and check and check and recheck and recheck. Um but that's an overlearned skill and they're doing it for everything and so that, that there's just no breakthrough. Um the trick is um in what jazz offers as an insight here is it's not completely unstructured there are structures in jazz but they're just the right amount and no more is that's why i call it minimal structure maximal autonomy and it's structured through time that we know at a certain measure what chord changes are appropriate you know when it gets to the eighth measure we're all going to be orienting ourselves to d minor but I have no guarantee what you're going to do with that. You could take it in all kinds of different directions not neither one of us had anticipated. But the fact that that's there uh that it's a it's impersonal, we don't have to stop to negotiate it. Just the right amount of structure. And we could do that in organizations some do that well, you know, sometimes it's just a phrase. Like for um a Nordstrom, the great Nordstrom department store has this phrase, you know, delight the customer. Um it's not a lot of clarity. It's just a, a suggestion for ways to embellish your act, activities. And the stories that come out of a place like Nordstrom are mind-boggling. Like one of my favorites is this woman bought uh bought a dress at Nordstrom's it was in Chicago in the month of January. She went out to her car and her car had a flat tire. So the salesman is thinking delight the customer. He went out and changed the tire for her. Now can you imagine an organization with a boss says what are you doing? I don't pay you to change tires. He didn't ask anybody's you know advice, didn't see if it was okay. He just embellished on this phrase delight the this minimal structure delight the customer. And you you know that that customer is probably a customer for life. Um he won some loyalty. Uh so minimal structure maximal autonomy. I love it and and again it goes back to that what we're talking about your granddad and hopefully me as a dad as well my son is you do, you want them to be their self themselves and you want to give them edges so they don't go beyond the boundary but you want them to fill it themselves and you give a great example of this again 
in art, essentially, this is with acting. And you say, for example, Robert De Niro, he likes to embellish the character and actually come up with uh, scenes that come from him and lines that come from him because he believes that's what that character would say. Yep, yep. Yeah, he's got just enough background. I mean, one of the, the way he studies acting has now become pretty famous, but he you know, almost takes on the character, um, puts on weight just like that character did, uh, takes up lifetime habits, the way the person gets up in the morning and whatnot. What he's doing is embodying sort of the whole mindset of what that character would do. So in real time, uh, would come out with a line that he, the Robert De Niro himself would never do, but able to do so because he's he's got the minimal structure of what this person is like that he can branch off and uh, modify as as appropriate and create novelty. I was thinking about, uh, about this where you bring it then to the organization because again, a lot of CEOs listen to the show and you mentioned again your experience with Carl Weick and he suggests that one organizational equivalent of minimal structure might be credos, visions, slogans, mission statements, and trademarks. And you give the example of FedEx, the world on time, which is broad enough for people to fill, like you were saying with Nordstrom, because I was thinking about that where this makes you think beyond the arena in which you compete. So you can actually look for innovations in adjacent businesses or adjacent industries, etc., and think outside the box, literally. Yep. Yeah, that's right. That's ex exactly right. The, the uh, FedEx example, the uh, uh, Nordstrom's example. Um, yeah, and let and then let go. <laughs> that's the next move is to let go and let people flesh out what that phrase means. And, and you say here as well, by saying yes to the mess and valuing the art of improvisation, leaders can create the conditions for guided autonomy. I absolutely love this language identifying the limited structures and constraints that facilitate coordination around the core activities. This means maximizing opportunities for diversity rather than insisting on unity or too much agreement. By hedging against the trap of too much consensus, leaders give subordinates additional freedom to experiment and respond to the sort of hunches in which true innovation is often found. That was an absolutely killer line, and I'd love you to maybe riff on that one, Frank. Sure. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about the importance of creating consensus and building consensus before taking action. To an extent, that's really important. But we also need to be aware of the danger of too much consensus and too much agreement, um, that that can be as in a jazz band, too much agreement is a disaster. You don't want too much agreement. You want just enough agreement on just the right things, just enough consensus that allows a lot of freedom to follow hunches, as you mentioned. And as leaders, I think that's important to remember. Like, what what is the non-negotiable that all of us need to hold true to? What is the real non-negotiable? That's worth a really good, deep, soul-searching conversation for leaders, for organizations. And then let everything else go. Let it go. It means sometimes there'll be different opinions. Maybe they'll contradict each other. Let the contradictions and the paradoxes come to fruition and see where it leads as long as this one particular non-negotiable is not violated that's lo lovely it's 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 such great language and mental models for people to build upon as well and, and the beauty about this book is they can bring it whichever way works for them actually and works for their organization as well and the fifth one is kind of linked to that this is jamming and hanging out learning by doing and talking 
And this for me was one where I don't do enough of this, actually, where you're thinking out loud and you're listening to people's others' opinions they're building on what you're saying here. And you share here that jazz musicians live for the jam session. They love to play together, calling out songs for each other, and then they hang out afterwards to talk about the session and share experiences and insights. A special kind of knowledge transfer takes place during those sessions, one that can't be replicated in any other way. And it's funny you say here, every established jazz musician has at least one story to tell about paying their dues at a jam session where they'd been ignored or embarrassed in some way. And that uncomfort has led to breakthrough thinking for them. Everybody's got a story, an embarrassing story. Uh, yeah, um, it's right. I, I love, and by the way, if, if you want to, you mentioned you might want to do another session next week if we don't get far enough. We can okay. find the time. Awesome, um, awesome. Monday through Wednesday, I have some availability so we could talk about that. But um, yeah, jam sessions. Um, jam sessions are places that are where, you know, you, you're free to experiment as wildly as possible, try things out, think out loud. And then afterwards, the sense making is really important. And, and I'm, I'm going to keep in mind organizational life. Where in organizations do we have white spaces where people are just hanging out and telling stories that are unofficial off the record? Um, those are really important moments. Um, they're rich with the possibility of fruitful breakthroughs for one reason, and that is it's legitimate to ask naive questions. It's impossible to overestimate that point. Where in organizational life is it legitimate to ask naive questions? Because most of the time, several of us, most of us are really interested in looking like we know what we're doing. Um, it's too, even right at the moment when you most need to be a learner, uh, you're more invested often in looking good, <laughs> looking like you know what you're doing. When are we able to strip that away? and ask questions where in your mind you think, geez, I really should know this, but I don't. I mean, I remember that in the military, this happens all the time, um, you know, where uh, we're really big on, uh, on acronyms, right? Because there's such a bureaucracy and they have all these words that turn into short, you know, short words based on um, some combination of letters. There's thousands of them. I wish I could think of one right hand. But often you see people will start using it because they hear everybody else using that word. I remember one time it was during break and you know, it was in the bathroom. One guy turns another says, what does that mean? I mean, he couldn't ask that in the meeting. <laughs> he couldn't say that because he's supposed to look like he knew what he was talking about. That's what hanging out is, is like saying, why, how did we get to the point? Why are we doing this again? And, you know, even little things like um, Miles Davis says, that's where he learned how to dress. This is how I learned why it's important how to dress up when you go to gigs because he was just hawking and hanging out to, with Charlie Parker and uh, Dizzy Gillespie. And, uh, you know, he, where, where else do you get to ask naive questions? Um, you know, the, in the, I got to work for the Navy and um, they had this uh, executive training workshop that they would do. Actually, it's called executive training, executive education, where they brought admirals and flag officers together for, you know, seven days or something to, to do some executive development stuff. Uh, and I looked at the schedule and every single hour was filled with activity with them getting input from some um, trainer, some executive 
um, coach or something. And I went to the designer and I said, geez, where's the white space? Like, where do they get to hang out? And she said, well, we have to demonstrate that it's worth it for them to come to Monterey, California to do this. We have to show that there's, it's worth it. Otherwise, you know, people at the Pentagon might think they came to Monterey just to go golfing or something. And I said, you know, I think some of the most important learning is going to happen off script because they're getting together for the first time, talking about each other's worlds. The unscheduled moments might be the breakthrough moments, and you've managed to just drive those out. And um, I, I don't think I made much of an impact, but it's uh, uh, it's it's an organizational uh, uh, habit. Unfortunately, we've gotten into. You're you're so right, Frank, and and I work in the same industry, by the way. Now, and um, I I the mental model I have is um, I I don't know if you're into plants or you you know you know when you water a pot plant, you can't you can't just keep filling it. It needs time to for the water to seep down to the roots, and I and I think about that with learning, and not just in organizations in learning and all. You need that that moment for the learning to seep in, but then. As you say, you need the cross pollination of the ideas because to bring it to music as well, I, I took a course where I, I had a 10 year career as a professional rugby player. And I went and I, I during that time, I kept learning and I was into I DJed on a, a jazz FM, by the way, a, a radio station, a pirate radio station at the time. But I, di I did things like this to keep my mind occupied. And I learned about the they, they started to introduce these virtual studios and you know, those trigger machines, so you trigger a, and, and it sends off uh, a whole sequence. So sequence machine, a sequencer, essentially. And I, w I often think about that. That's what those sessions really are. So you, you're up at the top, you're not the sage on the stage, you're the sparker of ideas, and then let everybody jam together and kind of go over to you guys. And then they talk and that's where the learning happens. Yeah, that's where learning happens. That's right. I the reason I say that is this is what this chapter really did for me, it made me, it gave me the language and the the visuals here where I saw the guys, you know, I saw you, you mentioned you, you had this experience as well. And you learned about, for example, some people who got into drugs and all this kind of stuff. And it put you off those things, it kind of warned you off all those kind of things. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, when I was on the road, the Tommy Dorsey band, I learned a lot about things that were not not really healthy. Um, and I, I guess why I got off the road. This is probably my favorite one. And I, I probably gave away the fact that it is at the start of today's show. It's taking turns soloing and supporting. And this is followership as a noble calling. And again, I'll tee you up with a solo here from the book. And there's so many, by the way, my notes are so compressed here. I've I've tons of email, I, I send myself emails, Frank, all the time. So tons of emails I've sent myself. And here you say, lead, follow or get out of the way. That old adage pretty much sums up conventional wisdom about the cor corporate pyramid. At the top are chief executives who give us direction. Next come the followers who fall in line. At the base is everyone else, the ones who muddle around and obstruct the way. Little wonder that boards, investors and other stakeholders become so fixated on identifying CEOs who can fill the role of the fearless leader. However huge the raid he or she might entail on the corporate coffers. So this is the whole idea of the CEO as the hero or the icon. And those days have to subside. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
you know, we spend so much time on thinking about leadership, so many books on leadership. Um, you know, if you were just to land in an airport bookstore, you would think that Steve Jobs is a god. Um, and there's even, there's sort of even a divine narrative around him, you know, say before Steve Jobs, um, we, we lived in isolated darkness. <laughs> and then Steve Jobs invented the iPhone. Uh, and then there was light. It sounds like Genesis. Um, the truth is Steve Jobs invented nothing. <laughs> what he was good at was create, creating a culture where people could fumble around, experiment. And he stretched them, absolutely stretched them. But he that's what his, um, his gift was, I think. But the reason I call attention to this is we put so much emphasis on leaders, especially heroic leaders, that we don't have a language for followership. What does a good follower look like? What does a good follower do? We don't even have a vocabulary for it. Um, in jazz, we do. We have a vocabulary and a whole way of being that makes followership a noble calling. Um, we call it comping, which is short for a company. And um, what the person doing the accompanying does, your whole mission in life is to make the soloist more brilliant. So when the soloist is soloing, you get out of the way after playing a lot of notes, you feed them ideas, you mirror back to them. But your entire mission is to help that person happen. And um, it'd be great if we had some vocabulary like that in our organizations. Could you imagine... You know, in performance appraisals, what if we had an item in performance appraisal that says, how well did you serve as a catalyst for someone else having a breakthrough? Or in what ways did you support someone else's project even though you did not get credit? Um, in what ways did you help someone think out loud so that they could arrive at new insights? They're very subtle moves, but they're moves that have to do with helping ideas move forward, helping the soloist solo without the ego investment of making sure that people know it's me. Um, uh, and what makes it, like I said, make it work is um, people take turns. There's a great um, study done at MIT. MIT, um, you know, wanted to ask this question, is there such things as smart groups? We know IQ can measure individuals, but it's our equivalent of an IQ of a group, an intelligence of a group. And being good scientists, they studied hundreds of groups and looked at the successful groups versus the, um, the groups that were less successful. And they discovered three things that um, are the qualities of good teams and good groups. First is uh, there's a lot of turn-taking. Is that one or two people didn't dominate so that participation was distributed somewhat equally and people um, were able to uh, uh, participate somewhat equally. Uh, the second point was there were lots of questions and curiosity, especially affirmative questions. So there was curiosity expressed in the group. When, when, so when participation is distributed and there's a lot of curiosity, the group gets smarter. And then the third thing, puzzled them because they didn't know why it helped, but they reported it being good scientists They reported it. And what they said was when there's a critical mass of women in the group, when an all male groups are not as smart as groups that have 
two or more women. Um, and they didn't say why, because they don't know, but they just reported it. And it's a great question for us to think about. I, I'd love to take you up on the offer of the the toolkit. Maybe we'll do the toolkit the next day. So this is where you go through all the different principles and break it out and kind of go, what can you do about it as an individual or an organization? But for now, maybe we'll finish on the final principle, which is leadership as provocative competence, a beautiful phrase that you came up with, or nurturing double vision. And I loved what you said here regarding fostering a design mindset again, here you say, when it comes to leadership, we too, we too often confuse authority with influence, we assume that what is important is to get authority, so that you can have influence. Yes to the mess proposes an alternative way of thinking about leadership activities, seeing them as relational moves within an unfolding context. In this model, leadership effectiveness is judged not by authority or how far up the pyramid somebody sits, but how well they work with the resources at their disposal, no matter how limited, how effectively they help free their own potential and that of others. We probably need to introduce here as well this concept that's beautiful, your comp your idea of provocative competence. I absolutely love this. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's um my favorite chapter. I'm working on uh, uh, an article on that concept right now that may, I hope, will come up emerge as another book. Um, I, and I, I call it double vision, which means um, the leader sees the person as they're behaving right now, but also is able to envision what that person is capable of, or, or a system or a group, they, they, like, they can see what's happening in real time, but can also see what's possible. And um, that that's the start, it's important to be able to do that, but that's not enough. What makes it a competence and makes it artful is you then introduce sort of interventions that are scaled just the right amount that demand that the system try something new, that the old ways um, to get out of habit patterns and experiment with new behavior or new new knowledge in some ways. And, um, and then thirdly, um, to stay in place. So if you're going to give, if you're going to sort of provoke a system to try something new, you better stay in place and hold the culture or hold the environment so that they, it will be a learning opportunity. You don't abandon them. You let them try. If staying in place means you let them try again and again and again, sort of like you mentioned, my grandfather teaching me to play piano, give the person uh, or the system room to experiment uh, within a new provocative framework. And as you mentioned, my ex the prototype example of this is Miles Davis, who found ways to provoke a system and demand that people show up in new ways. And by the way, it's not necessarily comfortable. Um, it doesn't feel good necessarily. I mean, Miles used to do things like um, he would call off a tune on the bandstand. And as he's counting it off, he would change the key. And, um, and it drive people a little nuts, because that's not the way they learn the song, not the way they learn the piece, but you got no, it's, this, there's no rehearsal, this is real time. And Miles, in fact, he made it part of his policy that his band never had a rehearsal, they never once had a rehearsal, everything they did, they did in real time in front of an audience or in a studio, 
um, so that he wanted them to be fresh, to experiment in real time. If you've practiced this before you got here, there's part of you that's not present. So, um, you know, it's a risky thing to do, but, um, I, you know, I like, I like the, uh, I like the notion of what it means, um, for, and, and it doesn't feel good by the way, necessarily. He didn't ask for consensus. I have, I mean, there's another example in the book and maybe you were going to ask me about this, but the example of British air, um, do you want to say something about it first? Or <laughs> you got, you got there ahead of me. I, I, maybe I'd love to expand because I'd love to share the experience I had before we did British, British airways. And this is the, your favorite example of provocative competence to beat the competency trap. This took place on March 2nd, 1959 at 3.30 in the afternoon in the Columbia Recording Studio. And this led to one of yours and mine favorite jazz albums of all time. And the reason I share this is I'll let you tell that story. And then I'd really highly recommend people did what I did for the hour before I was preparing for the show. I did. I listened to this album. Over to you, Frank. Yeah, it's, um, it's 1959. Uh, and Miles uh, brought together his quintet. Uh, musicians who were not known outside of the music world. Um, they weren't known yet. Um, the tenor player was a guy named John Coltrane. Uh, Cannonball Adderley was on alto. Um, the great Bill Evans, America's answer to Debussy, was on piano. Paul Chambers on bass and Jimmy Cobb on drums. Each of them went on after this to have a stellar um, jazz career. Uh, Bill Evans and John Coltrane obviously became leaders in their own right shortly after this. Um, but at the time, everybody was playing bebop music. Bebop was um, uh, the... Um, sort of modal, I shouldn't use the word modal here. <laughs> Bebop music was uh, the most popular form of jazz. And Miles had been experimenting, he'd been listening to um, a classical music, Debussy, he'd been listening to Stravinsky. Um, he'd been in conversation with the great Gil Evans, the arranger. And he started to become aware of different modes. Uh, now modes, modal music is, is a little different. It's built, it's built on fourths rather than thirds. It's quartal, quartal music, not tertiary music. And, um, and it's, it's built, built on Eastern modes. So if you hear it, if we had a piano here, uh, which I do, but I'm sure the sound wouldn't work out very well. If I thought in advance, I would have hooked my piano up through the system and I could have played it for you. So we'll just have to let that go for now. But do, do, will it take you long? Oh, let's see. I don't know. We don't have enough time, do we? Yeah, give me a minute. Let me try. Okay, don't, cool, man. Okay. Don't go away. Hold on. Okay. I was saying before that, um, let me try and schedule this so you can see the piano a little bit. Is that okay? Yeah. Um, so most jazz at that point was bebop. So here's an example of bebop. Nice, nice. Now, you can hear that okay? Perfect. A couple things about that. Um, it's really fast, it's hard driving, and a lot of chord changes. And um, what Miles Davis did when he introduced modal music uh, was music based on fourths. So here's what this sounds like.
That's very different from something like this. It's not, it's a very Eastern kind of music. And um, basically on this date in March of 1959, he had sketched out in very minimal terms a piece of music that would be played in modes. And um, what's interesting is the musicians had never played in these modes before. And it just had some tertiary um, knowledge of what, uh, what modes were. They, they didn't have it under their fingers, so to speak. But he turned to the recording engineer and he said, hit it. And everything you hear on this album is first takes. All the mistakes are right there. No rehearsal. And it's um, the reason to mention this is it's the highest selling jazz album of all time. The title of the album is Kind of Blue. In the very first piece, which I assume you you listened to this morning, or maybe you want to play, uh, it started off. You can just you can hear them almost see the musicians thinking out loud if you listen real closely to what's happening. Um, it starts off with the bass player Paul Chambers playing this line. And that's the only thing that's written out. And then Bill Evans answers him with two of the most famous chords in the piano jazz history. He does this. And what's interesting is they didn't have a name for that song. So a few months later, when they were releasing this album, they named it after Bill Evans' chord changes, and they called it So What? <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. That's where the name of that song comes from. And, Brilliant. Um, you can almost hear the um, the musicians thinking out loud and becoming more confident as they went. Um, so it's a great example of um, provocative competence. Is that Miles Davis sort of tricked them into behaving in new ways? He set up these design conditions that were unfamiliar. They had to take action. Um, he stayed present as they tried again and again, so they're able to experiment and learn through real time. Um, so that's that's my story of uh, provocative competence. Thank you for doing that. That was so great. And <laughs> it's it's eating up all our time, and our, our audience are going to go. What about British Airways? Do you have time to tell that story? Sure, I'll just tell the story real quick because it's another example of good provocative competence. Um, Back in the late 70s, early 80s, um, British Air was having trouble with customer service. And um, they did an offsite uh, to try and understand what they could do to help um, to be more innovative in how to respond to customers. And while they were in, it was in a hotel uh, where they were doing an offsite retreat. And while they were in the meeting, the um, vice president of marketing, I believe, went around in the hotel rooms and had all the beds taken out and put in airline seats instead. So that night when they went to bed, they were sleeping in the airline seat. Brilliant. And it's a great disturbance. It's a disruption. And then they came up with all kinds of new ways to make airline seats more comfortable for people. Um, and again, you know, it probably didn't feel good in real time, but it was a small gesture that had large consequences. Um, they came up with all kinds of innovative things. It's kind of like what Miles Davis did when he demanded that people play in these special modes. Maybe you'll play a little bit of kind of, of um, 
so what uh, in, during the show at some point so people can hear Frank I'd, I'd love to have you back on maybe we'll do the 11, the 11 uh, tools of the toolkit but um, I, I pulled I, I have a habit of pulling a, pract- a, a beautiful quote and I've pulled one as well and I'd if if I when I'm giving that it's only a short one I'd love you to give your outro for today for your call to action for maybe our audience for leaders CEOs etc so I'll I'll go here very quickly give you a moment to have a think for yourself and um, then I'll play some so what on the way out. I never knew it was so what for that reason so what <laughs> beautiful <laughs> that's not my quote here it is This new era demands focusing on teams rather than individuals, encouraging ongoing learning and innovation rather than compliance to preordained plans. Leaders do not have the luxury of anticipating or predicting every situation, training and rehearsing for it and getting learning out of the way before executing. Rather, leaders must master the art of learning while doing and spread this mastery throughout their systems. That's why jazz bands are such provocative models for us to consider as we create teams and organizations in this 21st century. I absolutely love that as my outro, but I'm not, I'm going to get out of the way here and give it over to you to close today's show. Sure. I guess um, if I were going to try and whittle it down, I would say uh, for leaders, pay attention to what kind of questions you're asking. Are the questions allowing you to notice what the system looks like at its best rather than what what things are going wrong rather than just anticipating failures and breakdowns? Can you notice when people are operating at their best? And secondly, um, for all members of all organizations, don't wait until you feel comfortable to try something new because by definition, it doesn't feel comfortable. Um, at a certain point, you have to leap in and try something, and you have to do it now. Uh, uh, so don't wait to feel comfortable first. And Frank, for people who want to find you, where can they find you? Uh, my website is yestothemess.org, and uh, look forward to hearing from people. It is a pleasure to have had you on the show, Frank. I absolutely look forward to part two, author of Yes to the Mess, Surprising Leadership Lessons from Jazz. Frank Barrett, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Aiden. That was beautiful what you did as well. I appreciate it. Cool. Take care, Frank. Bye-bye. Have a great weekend. See you, man. And that's it for a wonderful episode of The Innovation Show with Frank Barrett on his book, Yes to the Mess. Don't forget, there's a copy up for grabs. Just sign up to innovationshow.io newsletter and you will be in with a chance to win a hard copy of this brilliant book. I really, really enjoyed it. Looking forward to part two as well. Finally, just to thank our sponsor, Zai. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded finance products and services, empowering businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. And I'll see you next week for part two of Yes to the Mess.